Hello and welcome to the September the 4th edition of Ukraine Without Hype, where we take a look at the biggest stories of the week from Ukraine and Eastern Europe. I am Maria Armanenko and beside me is my colleague Romeo Kokretsky. Hi guys. The past seven days were marked by two high-profile departures, or near-departures. Firstly, last Friday, Ukraine's constitutional called the appointment of the current and so far only head of Ukraine's national anti-corruption bureau, Artem Sitnik, unconstitutional, a decision that Nabu believes may have been political, as some senior court judges are implicated in a wide-ranging corruption case that Nabu is currently investigating. Sitnik, however, is not gone. He continues carrying out his responsibilities up until the new hiring contest is announced and the new head is chosen. According to the NABU director, the decision to proclaim his appointment as unconstitutional does not have any legal consequences for him, as the decree to appoint him expired as soon as he took office. This, however, may mean that presidents now won't be able to appoint the heads of the anti-corruption bureau. The Zelensky administration also heaped blame on the previous administration of Petro Poroshenko for Sitnik's appointment. They said poorly thought out, rushed and often questionable staff decisions were what led to this court decision. The second high-profile, this time actual, departure was that of Gael Leros, an MP from Serving the People, well, now an ex-MP. He was kicked out of the ruling party after burning bridges with the ruling party by leaking multiple, let's say, unflattering videos and audio recordings that seemed to implicate some of the presidential administration staff in corrupt dealings, or at least their close family members. Most famously, a audio recording where the brother of Andrei Yermak, the chief of staff, was heard trying to sell government positions for money. Kromansky interviewed him following this departure, and in a few comments, he said that President Zelensky had radically changed in the past six months. In his view, Zelensky has become less respectful and more dismissive and aggressive towards his critics. He also blamed the president for continuing to support Yermak even after the audio tapes were leaked. Leros believes that the president has effectively suburbed law enforcement bodies to his will, aside from Nabu, which he named the only law enforcement body that doesn't take Zelensky's orders, though he did actually call for Sidnik's dismissal following the constitutional court ruling. Now let's go to the east of Ukraine, as in the Kharkiv and Luhansk regions, forests were on fire for two days. The blaze destroyed 13 abandoned homes in the Luhansk region and 22 abandoned homes in the Kharkiv region. One Ukrainian soldier died as the fires were being extinguished and two others reported receiving burns. One resident of the Kharkiv region has asked for medical assistance after inhaling combustion products. 33 people had to evacuate their houses in the Kharkiv region. The Office of the President of Ukraine reported the preliminary cause of the blaze are likely embers from an ignited landfill spread by strong wind. The latest information that there are some areas of smoldering left where firefighters are still working, but no open fire. In other Donbass news, Vitold Fokin, Ukraine's first prime minister and current deputy head in the Ukrainian delegation to the trilateral contact group in Minsk, has stated to a Ukrainian media site that he supports the creation of a special status for Ukraine's entire Donbass territory, encompassing all of Donetsk and Luhansk regions, instead of just the occupied areas, and that in order to end the war, Ukraine should declare a public amnesty for everyone in the Donbass. Fokin's statement has ruffled feathers in Kiev, and according to one Ukrainian MP, he has even been summoned to the parliament to discuss his words on September the 15th. Officials like the Interior Minister Senovako, as well as the Office of the President, rejected Fokin's position, saying that they're not in line with Ukraine's national interests and are, quote, not the official position 
of Ukraine, unquote, with the chief of staff Andrei Yermak pointing out that amnesty could not apply to those who committed war crimes, interrogated prisoners, engaged in a financial crime, and a series of other charges. This special status would almost entirely devolve governance to local government organs chosen in snap elections and present conditions for holding elections, among them the removal of illegal armed groups, a guarantee of free expression, and return of control to the Ukraine-Russia border. Though according to the Ukrainian delegation in the trilateral contact group, Fokin was misquoted and his full wording was amnesty, but not for those whose hands are covered in blood. And actually, just today, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, stated that Ukraine is planning to hold a Normandy format meeting in September. This is after trying to have such a meeting for quite some time. It was delayed multiple times, not least because of COVID, but also previous to this. And the Normandy format meeting is basically a head of state level meeting between the leaders of Germany, France, Russia, and Ukraine, uh, where they try to discuss the uh, situation in the Donbass and come to some kind of conclusions. Though the previous meeting didn't lead to many results aside from another prisoner exchange. But maybe this new one will have some actual results. And our last news story involves a rather controversial court hearing where a Kyiv regional court ruled in favor of six British companies linked to oligarch brothers Igor and Grigory Surkis, who had been major shareholders in Ukraine's own too-big-to-fail bank, Privatbank, alongside oligarch Igor Kolomoisky, when a hole of $5.5 billion was discovered in Privatbank's banking sheets. The bank was then nationalized, and all of the shares reverted to state control. However, the bank's former owners have always disputed this nationalization and have had a slew of legal cases progressing through various countries' legal systems to that end. And in this particular case, the court ruled that Privatbank owes the companies their deposit plus interest, which comes out to about 324 million US dollars at today's exchange rate. If the bank, of course, refuses to pay, then its assets may have to be seized by Ukrainian law enforcement. Privatbank, of course, has stated that it will appeal this decision, and both the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Justice have denounced it, with the Minister of Justice himself calling the decision one of the biggest embarrassments in Ukraine's judicial history. Now, to explain all this better and to get a sense of what this decision could mean for Ukraine's reform efforts, I spoke to James Brook, the editor-in-chief at Ukraine Business News. Jim, thanks for joining me. So I wanted to talk about this uh, recent court decision uh, regarding Privatbank. So, you know, uh, the former owners of the bank have been just kind of covering the legal landscape in Ukraine and abroad, um, suing the bank, suing the Ukrainian government over the nationalization after this $5.5 billion fraud was found. Uh, and at least in this instance, one of these cases is paid off, right? And it's about $350 million that people think is now going to have to pay uh, to these companies that are connected to um, Urugori uh, Circus. Now, my question is, you know, obviously this isn't a great sign for Privat. Um, but on the other hand, you have to wonder if the courts in Ukraine can still make what seem to be these kind of um, irrational decisions, despite all of the public pressure. What does this really mean for Ukraine's judicial reform since... You know, since the Maidan, since the Zelensky administration, what can we really say? Has the courts just 
kind of blew off lustration, blew off all the reforms, and they've just reverted to type as they were under Yanukovych? My impression there really has not been that much effective reform. Um, and it's very important because the whole world is watching. Ukraine really depends on the goodwill of the IMF and of the EU and the international financial institutions to keep them solvent. And the IMF is hip to their tricks. And this is a red line would be any move to return Privat Bank to the former owners. Privat Bank was a pretty simple operation. You walked in with a bag of money and deposited. They smiled, said, thank you very much. And then someone took it out of the back door to Cyprus. And uh, the money was flowing right through. It was a pyramid scheme to some degree. And uh, they left a hole of $5.5 billion. Now, this for the people involved was probably the high point in their lives. And why should we deprive them of not having a second go <laughs> and stealing another $5 billion? Well, life, you know, that's nice that they peaked and, and they stole that huge amount of money. But uh, uh, that money cannot be, a lot of the money went back in was essentially IMF, World Bank, foreign, I mean, not World Bank money, but it was basically foreign aid to some degree that made Ukraine's largest bank far too large to fail, uh, made it solvent again. And it's actually a red line that cannot be crossed. And so there probably will be some sort of second judgment saying that was a mistake, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the Ukrainian courts are very unreliable and it's no big secret. And foreign investors know that. So they stay away. You know, one of um, Zelensky's kind of pressing points when he was running uh, for the post was that he'll kind of clean up Kiev, he'll do away with a lot of the corruption that was under the Poroshenko administration. But given that decisions like these are still being made, that doesn't seem to be the case. Has there been any real progress under Zelensky in terms of reforming the courts, in terms of protecting investor rights? Because, uh, you know, we know that the IMF um, sets recovering those 5.5 billion is a pretty high priority for the Ukrainian government. Uh, and it's definitely going to the opposite direction if the courts are forcing Privat to instead pay back the oligarchs. Correct. I agree with you, Romeo. And we, the Zelensky government and Zelensky himself, they say the right things. They know the catechism that they should be saying that we want to hear, and then they don't implement. Uh, and it, it's a big job to purge the court system and to create new honest judges and the old ones contaminate the new ones. And it, it's a systemic cultural change that has to take place. And uh, it's not taking place. It, it seems to be too ambitious for this government, for this president. And so he's trying to get away with saying the right things and not really doing anything. And we know that, we know that for example, his ministers came out and actually the Minister of Justice called this decision the, the biggest embarrassment in Ukraine's judicial history. Uh, at the same time, you hear things like um, we had uh, an, a now XNP from sort of from the people, Gail Leros, who is uh, who gave an interview to, to Kromatsky, and he uh, said that Zelensky is more or less effectively suborned the legal system to his will. Uh, now, you know, you can debate about how true that is and, and how accurate this is and what Leros' motivations are, um, but this does seem to be a rather common sentiment. At the same time, if courts can still push decisions like this that are obviously not Ukraine's interest, not in Zelensky's own public interest, does that show that he actually doesn't have as much control as perhaps his critics would like to paint him as having? 
Well, I think it just may be over his head. I mean, it's, it's a huge job and it has to be done in a step-by-step brick fashion. It's not very sexy rebuilding a judicial system and it requires patience and a long-term strategy. And I, I don't think he, he has great patience. He, he purged two thirds of the cabinet after six months. Uh, there's talk that he may purge some more after the local elections. Um, Frankly, someone who purges two-thirds of the cabinet after six months, the loser is not the cabinet. The loser is the man who does the purging, namely the president. So I don't think he's a very good manager. I don't think he he understands how to get from A to B. Uh, he's correct in that his analysis is the, without his public supported opinion polls, he's nothing. So he's very careful to try to keep that up because he hasn't built a, a real party. Um, but re- rebuilding the legal system is crucial. And I was just, this sounds like a non sequitur, but I was reading, I like to read in Wikipedia, the Shetland Islands. Their motto, which is in Old Norse, um, was adapted um, 1,000 years ago. And it says, by law shall land be built. Now, these are people who d- adopted this concept of building an economy according to law 1,000 years ago. And you can't fudge it. You know, I, I've worked in Africa where you can have sort of tribal agreements and, and, and you get just so far with that. But that's kind of where we are in Ukraine. Like, okay, you're a foreign investor. You're going to invest 100,000, 50,000 hectares. You hire the governor's daughter to be a receptionist or something. or to, You know, you can do these things, but it's much simpler and much more efficient and much more modern to have a legal system with honest judges and, and that people rely on. And you can outsource it and have, you know, arbitration overseas and these sort of gimmicks, which basically are making up the fact that you can't hire lawyers, I mean, excuse me, judges and pay them maybe $50,000 a year and, and keep them straight. That's not happening. And speaking of kind of making a law-based economy, um, in terms of, uh, so this $350 billion, $350 million that Priva Bank will not have to pay, obviously, uh, as I said, they're going to appeal this. Um, you mentioned that probably there's going to be a higher court decision that overturns it. Um, but at the same time, what do you think the IMF's reaction is? Because they, like you said, the, the IMF has been Ukraine long enough to kind of get acquainted with all the typical Ukrainian political dodges for why they can't fulfill all of these things. Um, and so far, they have been giving the money, um, despite very little to maybe no progress has been shown. Do you think the IMF will take this as, as kind of like, well, you know, uh, sometimes bad decisions happen? Or will this finally serve as, at least partially as a last straw, where they say, no, we're cutting you off. You guys clearly are not fulfilling your obligations. Right, Romeo. I, I think the IMF will probably wait until the October 25 local elections and then send a review mission. Uh, if you look at the history of IMF deals with Ukraine, n- none of them have been completely fulfilled by the Ukrainian side. So they've all gone off the rails. Um, and I, I think uh, they'll send the review mission. There are a lot of other, th- this is a major problem, but you know, the, the big change in the central bank was a real stick in the eye of the IMF. And the IMF is being very diplomatic, probably too diplomatic. And, and uh, 
the Ukrainian government may think they can get by without the IMF, but they can't. And I had a reader who said, you know, write more positive news. And my response was, give me a list of the top five foreign investments in this country in the first six months. There aren't any. There are a couple of holdovers that came through the concessions of the ports down in Mikolaev, but um, foreign investment is not coming into this country. I, I hate to be blunt, but um, now you can say it's a lost year because of COVID and all that stuff, but um, it, it's uh, the money's not coming in, and that's why you have the IMF, and you try to have the IMF to build internationally acceptable systems and accounting and and now they're, they're fudging on that so you know it, we're, we're going to be kind of muddling through but I, I would be i would be happy to see a second imf tranche come in the in this winter but i'm not so sure it really will now there was also the the so during the the first government under hunchuk right um they had these economic projections which I mean, to me as a layman, it sounded completely insane. They, it was something to the tune of like 40% growth over four years. Yeah. Um, which, again, I'm, I'm not an expert, but that to me seemed utterly fantastical. And obviously these numbers aren't going to, mat- aren't, aren't going to actually uh, be anything close to that. Uh, and obviously decisions where it turns out Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's largest bank is having to pay um, more or less the people who conned it out of $5.5 billion are, are not helping. Um, but what kind of actual economic progress can we really see? Yeah, granted, with COVID, it is um, absolutely a lost year. But even beyond that, you know, um, Zelensky's coming up to, to half his presidency. Uh, and all these well, promises he, are unfulfilled. He's only done one year out of five. But I, I don't really see any big action on the horizon. What is odd is if you look at the World Bank's list of the top 10 growing economies in the last decade, there are places like Rwanda and Ethiopia and maybe Mozambique, places you don't really associate with the rule of law, but they're growing and they're going fast. And so there are other elements. One thing you don't have here is you don't have very uh, demographically dynamic population, which is a fancy way of saying the population is shrinking and the workforce is definitely shrinking because people are quietly going to Poland to work. Um, so the eternal domestic economy isn't really that exciting. The export economy is frankly doing okay. I mean, IT is doing well, and they may attract um, companies from Belarus. Food, with number one exports, doing well. Um, and once again, labor, which is an export, is doing well. Uh, you know, they're getting a billion dollars a month from people working in the rest of Europe, essentially. So um, I just don't see a lot of dynamic. I, I think there's still the, the Russian military threat is a veto on a lot of investment in the country. The, the people especially do not want to go east of the Dnipro River. Uh, and then with all these troubles in Belarus and Russia basically saying they would invade or intervene, that raises the Ukraine risk a few more notches. Um, and then it just doesn't help having these, you know, horror stories. I was in a uh, law office, an American lawyer. It was a uh, American farmer there who had basically just been ripped off of his farm operation by his Ukrainian um, partner. And the Ukrainian partner was now up for a big government job. Uh, people 
these stories get around. And so people say, great place to visit, but no thanks, I'm not going to put my money in. So a couple of years back, um, I think we had actually an interview with you where you were, um, at least you expressed some optimism for, for Ukraine's sure. economy and opening up. Um, do you still hold to that? Or do you think that with with time I, and the way the Zelensky administration has gone, that, that, that optimism may have been misplaced or misjudged? I, I think um, Zelensky is a big disappointment. Um, not only is he over his head, but he's not really, doesn't seem to be learning on the job. Um, and this sort of petulant firing people and really incredible people. I mean, the man who invented Prozoro wasn't good enough for him. He hadn't ended smuggling in six months. Who had been smuggling this country for about 500 years, you know? I mean, it, you know, it's just completely immature to believe that someone can end smuggling in five months. Um, and I, I don't think he, um, he can really, he's rising above, you know, he had the, he had the a team, he had the momentum, he had the mandate and he had the generational turnover. He had the youngest Rada in history. He was the youngest president in history, the youngest prime minister of history. Um, he gets petulant about the prime minister was, you know, ran the EU funded reform office here for two years. I mean, what more do you want? You know? Uh, and it said he turns and he hires these sort of B teamers from the Yanukovych era. People hadn't been heard of in five years, 10 years. And, and they're really kind of non-entities. Um, so I no, I'm not that optimistic, frankly. Um, and there always is the Russian threat. And Russia runs a gangster economy, which if you're a gangster is good. And so the gangsters here want to do that. The Russian gangster economy works because of oil and gas. They make enough money to spread around and keep people more or less happy. Ukraine doesn't have oil and gas. That's the, the big disappointment for the gangsters is it doesn't, there isn't a lot of money here. There's a lot of hard work here if you want to work and make money. So the gangster economy model doesn't work, but there is that cohort they want to restore the good old days of the gangster economy and, and they're not going away. And the Privat Bank, just to complete the circle, Privat Bank issue we're talking about is a prime example of gangster ripoff artists trying to get their hands again on government. And um, uh, it, it, it's a toss up whether the Maidan generation can prevail or the Maidan generation will throw up its hands and move to Poland. Or get co-opted, as the case uh, yeah. sometimes is. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time, James. It was a pleasure sure. talking to you. Yeah, Romeo, thank you. So that was James Brook, the editor-in-chief of Ukraine Business News. And that's it for this week. If you like this podcast, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now Spotify as well. Your ratings and reviews really help us. And this is far from our only product. Check out our YouTube videos by searching for Hermaski International. And this week we have an exciting start to the Explain Ukraine project by Kari Oderman. The project is basically what it says in the tin and explains Ukraine to foreigners. And the first episode is about the Ukrainian economy and why Ukraine, despite being the largest European country, has one of the smallest economies in Europe. 
Sign up for our daily newsletter by following the link in our description. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Just search for Hermatsky International and Twitter at at Hermatsky. Thanks for being with us today. And please don't forget to set your likes and to rate us. Thank you.